All right, well, I want to start off with a quick question, and I want you to think about the answer, okay? When you think about some of the most difficult to believe, difficult to understand words in all the Bible, what comes to your mind? Think about that. I mean, there are 66 books within the Bible, over 800,000 words. Which ones seem like the most difficult to grasp, to believe, to truly inculcate, to, to own as your own part of your own story, the way you make up reality? I mean, I think, I think some of the most difficult ones could possibly be heaven. <laughs> like, how do you begin to imagine and make sense of heaven? Maybe hell would be another one that could be really difficult, or frankly, anything that has to do with sex. Uh, maybe for some folks, like a, a pretty difficult, you know, when it comes love, to difficult grace, mercy. love, grace, mercy, all those. But, but here's where I think some of the most astounding words, some of the most difficult words to truly wrap our minds around are this In the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ten words that start off the whole of the Bible. Ten <laughs> words that maybe, just maybe you've heard hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times. And I think as Christians, if you are a Christian, we can so easily take that for granted. Thinking, okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I get it. Let's move on already. But whether you're a Christian and you grew up playing with Adam and Eve flannel graph figures. Anyone else? Am I the only one? <laughs> okay. Uh, or maybe you're much more normal. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, you, you're not a Christian and you're here checking out church for the first time. Whatever it is, I'm convinced, and whoever you are, I'm convinced that some of the most outstanding and most difficult and most outrageous words are these words, in the beginning God. And, and to help that kind of sink in for us, we're going to have some crowd participation today uh, in the sermon. All right, Charlie's in. So Charlie's always like, I'm always in for crowd participation. Um, so, but here's what I want us to do, okay? I'm going to say the phrase, in the beginning, throughout the sermon, okay? And you're going to say, God, okay? So let's try that out together, okay? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning. God. There you go. Excellent. See, okay, throughout the sermon, it's going to be a way to keep you awake. No, I'm just going to be a way to make sure that we're all engaged and invited and, in, and involved in this morning's experience as we unpack this brilliant text that's before us. And so whenever I say, in the beginning, God, there we go. See, now we're good. So I might try to help with some body language, all right? Um, but every now and then I might not, and I just might say, in the beginning, God. So, okay, so that's good. So great. Excellent. That's, that's the way we're going to do things. And here's the deal. Cause, and some of you may be thinking, okay, Gabe, this is a bit of an overstatement, in the beginning. God. Uh, so it's, it's going to be all over the place, so just be ready. Uh, that might feel like an overstatement to say that that is somehow the, one of the biggest, most robust statements. But listen, listen, listen. If this phrase, in the beginning, God. is genuinely true and not some backwoods pipe dream, it changes everything. Everything. Now, if you're new this morning, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. And you picked an exceptional Sunday to be at church. 
because we're going to be walking through, we're starting this journey through the book of Genesis, which literally, its name, this is the first book in the Bible, its name means beginnings. Now, it's not the oldest book in the world, and it may not even be the oldest book in the Bible, but it's where it all began. It's where it all began. And beginnings are really important, aren't they? Where you begin impacts where you end. And, frankly, how you see yourself arriving to whatever that end may be. We all have starting points, every single one of us. We all have these beginnings, these, these beginning understandings on how we see the world, how we understand our lives, and what's even possible in the future. And wherever you hope your life heads, beginning points are so crucial because they make even a deeper understanding of what you think is possible in the future and how you plan your life to arrive at what you think is the best perceived future for you. Now, everybody has a starting point, and what we also need to understand is that everybody, no matter who you are and no matter what you believe, has questions that feel mysterious, that feel unanswered, that feel like it could take a lifetime to explore. And so when we come to the narrative of Scripture... And we come to the very first sentence in the very first book in this whole brilliant drama that unfolds over 66 books. When we come to this audacious statement, this summary sentence, we're going to have a lot of questions. But it's just like every other starting point in that regard. Let's hear the answers that Scripture has to give <coughs> to some of those questions when we see in the beginning. God. Charlie, you're on your game this morning. Way to go. I'm off. <laughs> so another way to kind of def define this, uh, this, this thesis that we see across the pages of Scripture is that everything begins with God. Everything. And if that's true, it's going to change everything. And we're going to see that play out across the pages of Genesis in the ancient or Eastern culture in which Genesis was written and recorded, as well as how it has continued massive implications for your life and mine Today, we're going to walk through Genesis throughout this year as a crucial component of our teaching time together. And then we're going to do, uh, so we're, we're engaging together here right now, aren't we? Yeah. So, um, and so as we walk through it, we're going to see three major chunks in Genesis, okay? Three textual chunks that have unique emphasis in this broader coherent story that make up Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11 is the first chunk in Genesis. Chapters 12 through 37 is the second chunk, and then roughly chapter 38 through 50, okay? So these three massive chunks that have a unique nuance of this God who's actually carrying out his brilliant work in the world that he has created. And today we're going to get oriented to a world where in the beginning God is the framework for the world that we see. And so we're going to begin at the very first section in the first sentence, which is a summary sentence for where everything is headed. Okay? Sound good? So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, while you're turning there, um, I want to say you're going to have a lot of questions as we go through this. Okay? A lot of questions. And we want to hear about them. So feel free to email us, ask us, engage with us. This is a safe place to be exploring Scripture together. We're also going to be creating these little videos that we're going to be putting on Facebook at least once a week, following up where we're going to try to go deeper into some of the conversations and topics that we may not always have time for on a Sunday 
morning. And to help mitigate and kind of get us situated in the context of Genesis, the first thing we need to understand when we're stepping in there with all the questions we have is that the world of Genesis is weird, <laughs> right? As you, even as you heard Sean mention earlier, as he was brilliantly guiding us in, in music this morning, we come to Genesis, and although it's written for God's people throughout history, it was not written to 21st century modern people. Genesis was written to ancient Near Eastern people over 3,000 years ago who had a different framework on how they saw the world. Their understanding of time wasn't correlated with a text message or an email where instant gratification came at the snap of a finger. They were much more tethered to the earth, much more engaged in creation broadly had a different framework for how the world worked, what they could see, what they could not see, and how all of these different pieces were playing together. <laughs> so we need to understand we're stepping into an ancient world that has a different framework for how the world functions or even reference points on how to navigate the world in which we find ourselves. Secondly, it's not just a different people broadly, but a different people specifically. It was written first and foremost to Israel. And when this was written and given to Israel, it was after 400 years, as a developing nation, after 400 years of oppressive slavery in Egypt, and they're coming out of Egypt, led by Moses, who is led by God a couple steps ahead. And God's ultimate goal was never just to bring liberation from slavery. His goal was, yes, liberation from slavery, but now liberation to whole life, the way life was meant to be lived as mature people to be exclusively worshiping the one true God and to now be an example to the whole world. And so what God does is, yes, he brings liberation from slavery, but he also generously reveals his design, his purpose for his design, the history of of how God's people have arrived where they are, and then even the institutional framework to become a nation that is now to be a beacon of restoration the world over. And this revelation is often described as the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. And all the word, only Pentateuch literally means first five books, right? Five books, five. Um, and the first out of this Revelation is the book Genesis. Now, Genesis is a brilliant insight to how the world works, but it wasn't the only creation narrative of its time. If you look across the ancient Near Eastern world, there are all kinds of stories as to how the world came about and why we exist. Genesis is a story against all those other stories telling us a really unique perspective on why we're here. And so God tells us our story here in Genesis, and he tells it to us in Hebrew. And that's really important, okay? We're, we, we were not communicated this brilliant revelation in English. And so our English translations are really helpful but sometimes they're really inadequate. There's a translation myth we can sometimes assume that one English word can truly translate one Hebrew word, and that's just not the case. Do you need a glass of water, buddy? Yeah, okay. I want to help you out. I don't want you to be struggling the whole time. I want to help you out. Um, 
And so uh, in the midst of that, so you have this translation myth that if you just come to the English text, it's helpful and it's good. But we need to be doing some appropriate study going back to understand what the author's original intent was. And sometimes that means we have to step into its Hebrew. And we have to better unpack and study and wrestle together with what the text intends. Okay? And so here's the other thing. I'm not going to get into all linguistics, but just a helpful framework. A lot of folks have recognized that language informs how you see the world. Here's a great example. Just to once again remind ourselves we're stepping into a different world. English, you read from left to right. I guess for you that'd be this way. Just thinking of you. Uh, and for Hebrew, you read from right to left. It's a different way of even just framing the world, thinking about the world, seeing the world that invites you in to say, okay, we're stepping into a different world. So how do we do this? Let's go now, and we're going we're gonna to do something we don't always do. We're going to look word by word at Genesis 1-1 and enter into a world that is not our own, but is maybe a better world than we could have imagined. Okay? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God. Don't jump the gun, Charlie. In the beginning... God. ...created the heavens and the earth. Now, this little phrase, hold yourself, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God, this little phrase, in the beginning, don't say God yet, don't say, don't say God, <laughs> this little phrase, this little phrase is actually one Hebrew word. It's one Hebrew word, and it's better to, to think of it as at the time of the beginnings, at the time of the beginnings. The other places that this word is used is often describing like the reign of a king. So at the beginning of the reign of so-and-so, okay? So it's talking about a broader period rather than a specific point. It's talking about the, I mean, this whole, so in the beginning of the reign of so-and-so, they did all of these things and that could cover a, a broader swath of time. So right here at the very beginning, that little phrase, which is one Hebrew word, we need to understand it's talking about a period, not exclusively about a point. Secondly, there's a major assumption going on at the very beginning here. Something new is taking place, but it's coming amidst something old that already existed, right? Something new. There's the beginning of something new, but it's happening around or in the midst of something that already existed, which leads us to our second and our third Hebrew word. Look with me again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a God who is over time, who was before time, and now has created time as we know it. The Hebrew word for God here is the word Elohim. And I think in our 21st century modern culture, sometimes if we hear the word God, we have a very specific picture, and it doesn't capture best the Hebrew intention here. You see, the word Elohim Yes, across the pages of Scripture talks about the God of the Bible, but the word Elohim is also used for other gods and goddesses throughout the text. It's used for demons. It's used for angels. It's even used for human beings after they've died. So there's a broader framework here and how we're wrestling with this Elohim who's at the very beginning. And that's why I think it's a better framework, a better understanding of the word Elohim to think of, instead of using the gloss or the English word God, to use the word spiritual being. In the beginning, yes, God 
There's this Elohim, this spiritual being who's on a different plane of reality, who exists before everything that we see, existed before all of that, exists over all of that. And there's something so unique about this one particular Elohim. You see, Elohim is actually plural. The word for created is singular. So there's something truly mystical and beautiful and complex about this creator God that's way beyond our framework of understanding initially. And we begin to say, what's so unique about this Elohim, this Elohim, who existed before time? There's something so unique about this Elohim and that he has created everything that exists that was created. The word created there is only associated with God throughout the biblical text. It's never used in conjunction with human beings. There are other words that are used for human beings making something or doing something or creating something, but this specific word is only ever with God, with Elohim as the subject. You see what I'm saying? There is something so unique that only this Elohim can do. When it comes to creation, this kind of creation, only this Elohim. God can do it. So to sum it up, you have this Elohim who is before time, who is over time, who does what only this Elohim can do and that he creates everything. Now how do we get everything? Now go back to the text. In the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth, the sky and the land, Right? It's actually, when, when a Hebrew reader would have heard this or read this, they would have thought everything. We have a, a, a form of structure like that in the English and language as well. It's called merism. If you use two opposites, you're not just meaning the parts, but you're meaning everything in between those two opposites. The sky was the outer limit. The, the, the land was the lower limit. And whenever they would hear the, the heavens and the earth, the sky and the land, they would think of all that they could see Everything around them, everything, heavens and the earth, everything. We do this when, when we think of it this way. Here's an illustration. If you take two parts hydrogen, you smash that together with one part oxygen, you don't say, hey, you want some hydrogen and some oxygen? No, you have H2O, you have water. Those, when they come together, actually encapsulate. Now there's, there's something other that's going on there. We use a different word. And so when they're hearing the heavens and the earth, they're not just thinking about the parts. They're now thinking about everything. And so there is. At the beginning, when everything that was created that is created, there is this Elohim who's on this different plane of reality. He does something that only this Elohim can do. He brings into existence everything that is created. And every spiritual being or other being, whatever other beings there are, is subservient to this one Elohim. There's only one Elohim who's worthy of worship and devotion. And it's this Elohim right here. Because he holds the very life breath of all that exists. And this Elohim exclusively holds that power. Now, it's at this point kind of growing up. This is when now the charts and the schemas would come out as to why then the earth is 10,000 years young, right? 
and why a yom, which is the Hebrew word for day, literally is 24 hours, period. And if you do not believe both of those things, then frankly, you don't take the Bible seriously. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're not even a Christian. That was the world I grew up in. But I want to be very clear as we step into this text. I want to be very, very clear that you do not have to believe that the earth is 10,000 years old in order to be a Christian. I think we could... I think we can all agree on that. That your soul is not dependent upon your viewpoint in the age of the earth. But I also want to say, and this is really important, that you don't have to believe that the earth is 10,000 years old to take the Bible seriously. I take the Bible very seriously, literally. <laughs> There's a little joke there. Um, <clears throat> I do. And yet Hebrew scholars who know the text so well, who know the ancient Near Eastern culture so well. They disagree on how to interpret and understand how this impacts our viewpoint on the origins of the earth. Not about whether or not God is the one who's involved in the agent. That, that's extraordinarily clear. But the age of the earth and the period, or is it a point? Is it a literal 24 hour? There is a lot of room for interpretation to take the text very seriously and navigate that. But we're going to dovetail into that a lot more next week as we continue to unpack the rest of Genesis 1. But I do want to set that as an initial stage for our conversation, to take the text extraordinarily seriously, to follow Jesus and every word that he guides us does not mean you have to hold a particular viewpoint on the age of the earth. So, what are we going to do today? <laughs> Well, in light of what we've seen, there's a lot more ground to cover. Next week, we're going to see how this Elohim, he creates in a way that only he can through his very words, this mixture of breath and the utterance of sound to bring into existence everything that was created and that is created. But today, if it is true that in the beginning, then there are three huge implications for how we navigate this world and the way this world actually is. And here they are. Here's the first one. The first huge implication, if this is true, is that we live in a world that's haunted by meaning. It's haunted by meaning. What do I mean? Whenever you look at a piece of artwork and it, it arouses something deep within your heart, when you hold your child right after they're born and, and there's something that's just going on inside of you that, that pushes you beyond yourself. Or, or maybe when you're doing a task or you're engaged in some level of work or you're, you're, you're doing some particular project and then everything within you feels like you're doing what you were meant to do. What do you do with that feeling? Rejoice. You can rejoice. But there's a question as to where this feeling comes from. You see, everyone, everyone, no matter what you believe, whether you take science seriously or not, whether you take the Bible seriously or not, everybody comes from a place of faith and what we do in the gaps on what we cannot fully explore. And the predominant story we are told in this particular point in history and our small little niche of Western culture is this. You and I are nothing more and a bunch of chemicals that accidentally just bumped into each other. What you see is what you get, and that's it. That's our story. 
So what do we do with those, those feelings where, where it seems like our body is actually pointing us to a bigger world, someplace that's beyond than just what we see and touch, that there's somehow things are interconnected in a way that we cannot begin to even understand. What do we do when even our bodies are pointing us to something else? It's almost like we're haunted by meaning. Like there's this ghost from a bygone era that we're told has been disproved and meaning feels like it's just lurking off in the distance, just out of reach. What, what do we do? I was recently watching uh, Blue Planet 2. Have you seen this? It's on Netflix. It is awesome. Uh, it, they, they go to like the deepest crevices of the ocean and they show you <laughs> creatures that I thought only existed in my imagination. Um, like I, I've could have sworn like Israel drew a picture of one of those at one point. I was like, there's no way that exists. And I was like, oh my goodness, it exists. Um, and I still think, and one of the most astounding statements they said was that we know more about the surface of Mars than we do what takes place in the deepest parts of our oceans. <sighs> you know, doesn't that just like send some chills down your spine? We think we've explored everything when it comes to our planet. We feel like we know everything. No, there's so much yet to even be explored right here on this little blue and green dot. And then there's just the broader universe. We live in an unbelievable world and an astounding universe. <coughs> but why? Like, wh why all this beauty? Why all this grandeur? Why all the complexity? You begin to step back. And when your body is reaching out for saying, you know, like, feel like there, there, there's something bigger going on than just that, that momentary experience. Why? Because listen, if God doesn't exist, all of that is meaningless. All of that is pointless. All of that is for nothing. Everything you do is meaningless. Where you go on Monday, what you do with your life, how you treat the people around you, Every bit of that is utterly meaningless. Well, what's the search for meaning? In the broader narrative that we're told in our culture, it's nothing more than an evolutionary hitch that'll be gone if you give it enough time. Is that the world you want to live in? Is that the world that your body is even pointing to? And more and more people are being honest about how they just can't shake this longing for meaning, this shake... <laughs> And shake somehow that, that there's actually more than what they just see, taste, touch, and smell. And one of those is John Krakauer in his uh, national best-selling book. He, it's called Under the Banner of Heaven. He's really transparent about his own journey. I don't think he's a Christian. He says, I don't know what God is, what God had in mind when the universe was set in motion. In fact, I don't know if God even exists. Although I confess that so I sometimes find myself praying in times of great fear or despair, or astonishment at a display of unexpected beauty. And a little bit later, and if I remain in the dark about our purpose here and the meaning of eternity, I've nevertheless arrived at an understanding of a few modest truths. Most of us fear death. Most of us yearn to comprehend how we got here and why. Which is to say, most of us ache to know the love of our Creator. And we will no doubt feel that ache, most of us, for as long as we happen to be alive. This hunger and this haunting of meaning. Why? Ecclesiastes. So one author in Scripture, the author of Ecclesiastes, brilliantly highlights this as well when he says that God has hidden eternity in man's heart. 
He's put eternity in man's heart. This, this realization that there's something bigger than just our time here. There's something bigger going on in the world. We hunger for meaning. We long for it. And when you come to Genesis 1-1, where you read, in the beginning, God, the door is flung wide open for a whole world of meaning where God actually made us on purpose and with purpose. What is that purpose? He invites us to find out right here. And the hunger we, or the, the meaning we hunger for and we long for and we feel haunted by, we finally find a place for when we let God tell the story. All because in the beginning, God. Now, the second huge implication, if this is actually true, is that we live in a world not just haunted by meaning, but under God's authority. You see, the ancient Near Eastern struggle wasn't between whether there is a God or isn't. Rather, it was a struggle between which God's the best God. I mean, there are all these different gods out there, and if you hedge your bets, maybe you're serving a couple just in case one of them trips up, you know? Like, there's a different framework on reality. And, and Moses, when they're coming out of Egypt, where there are gods for so many different things when it comes to their explanation of reality, Moses is really clear right out the gate. He says, listen, listen, you can't pick and choose your God. Instead, there is only one Elohim who is worthy of your devotion. One Elohim who is worthy of your utter submission. And it's this Elohim who does what only this Elohim can do in creating everything that exists that was created. Now, for you and I, I don't think we struggle as much worshiping the sun. I mean, the closest we get to that is going to a tanning bed. Like, why would we do that? Anyway, um, but for us, we're actually a lot worse than they were. Because at least when they were tempted to worship the sun, moon, and stars, the sun, moon, and stars have so much grandeur about them. You can almost begin to understand why someone might. For us today, we worship ourselves. We tend to live and think as if, and I want you to hold your, what we've been doing so far, we tend to live and think as if, in the beginning, me. See how weird that sounds after we've been repeating this over and over again? That the world revolves around me, my perspectives, my outlook on life. It's kind of like the old fallacy. We used to think that the whole universe revolved around the earth. And then we said, whoops, it actually revolves around the sun. It's a different framework of understanding. So often, we're so satisfied to believe that the whole universe revolves around me and my perspectives and the way I see the world. And so if we disagree with God or we disagree with what we see in Scripture, we think, well, in the beginning, me. There's no way that could be real. And we elevate ourselves to a central spot of superiority and so what do we do? We're unafraid to push back against family cultures and to dissect different religious beliefs, which, frankly, is not all bad. There are certain family cultures that are really toxic that need to be dissected. And then there are clear religious beliefs this world over that will set you down a trajectory of destruction. But we've gotten to the point, and we can so easily find ourselves in this point where we're picking and choosing when we want God to be at the center 
and when we want to be at the center. When I want to say in the beginning, or when I want to say in the beginning, me. And the danger there is DIY spirituality will never give you what you want. Take a little bit of this, sprinkle in a little bit of that, you know, put on a new coat of paint. Why are you bringing food and painting there? I don't know. But you got this DIY, right? This DIY spirituality will leave you extremely vulnerable to self-deception. Philosophers, whether they're Christians or not, will say we so easily want to believe what we want to believe because what we believe helps us do what we really want to do. And it's where our hearts go that we ultimately easily find things justifiable and so our hands find things doable. We're so easily opening up ourselves to self-deception to just believe what makes us feel good rather than what is true about the world. And so we need to hear the same pushback that Moses is giving here, that you can't just pick and choose. I mean, think about yourself, what was it, five, ten years ago? And think about, <laughs> think about a problem that you're facing today. And think about, okay, I'm going to invite myself from five to ten years ago to deal with the problem I'm facing today. How would you feel about that? That would terrify me as I think about my own life. Because the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know, and the more I need other people in my life to protect me sometimes from my own destructive desires and easy post-hoc justification of the things I ultimately just want to do. DIY spirituality isn't going to get you what you want. So we can't just pick and choose when we want God to be at the center and when we want to be at the center. We can't just pick and choose, you know what, I agree with God on this, but this other thing over here, he didn't know what he was talking about. We can't do that. Either Here's the deal. This is the equation. Either this Elohim created you in everything or he didn't. If he didn't, why are you here? It was so hard to drive to church apparently today, you know, right? So why on earth would you find yourself here? Now, if he did then he has the right to define everything. You owe him complete and utter allegiance without any exceptions because of who he is. All because in the beginning, God. God. So if this is true, yes, we live in a world that's haunted by meaning and we live in a world under God's authority. But then thirdly, if this is true, we live in a world where love is a reality. What's so fascinating about Genesis is that we not only see a brilliant picture about why we are here, but for whom we are here. We're not just revealed something, but someone. And what a someone. I mean, this Elohim, right here in this very first verse, we get something truly astounding about who this Elohim is. Theologians have described the picture that we get right here in verse 1 as a picture of God's aseity. So it has, this word aseity has its roots in Latin. So let me dissect it for you ever so quickly. A in aseity means from. Se means self. Aseity essentially, simply put, means absolute self-sufficiency. Absolute self-sufficiency. God needs nothing from no one at any point in history ever. This is who God is. Before the world existed, he existed in himself. Before anything else existed, he didn't create the world because he needed the world. Utterly self 
sufficient. A being unlike any other in a class wholly different, wholly other, who's worthy of all that we are and utter devotion. So then why on earth would he create the world? <laughs> Have you thought about that? Like if this is who he is, he doesn't need anything. If he is truly one of a saity, why on earth would he create the world? Because aren't we a bit of a headache sometimes? It's like, <laughs> you know, like why on earth would he do this? The answer is love. Someone who is overflowing with love loves to share it. <laughs> and it's littered, this answer, this answer of love is littered all across the pages of the Pentateuch, these five first books of the Bible, but it becomes most explicit when you get to Jesus, the God who is over time, steps into the time that he created as a created being to redeem all of creation. I know your head's like, what in the world just happened there? Um, it's truly beautiful, mysterious, mind-blowing. And John, someone who followed Jesus, one of his closest apostles and disciples, when he's thinking about how he's going to tell the account of this Jesus who lived, who died, who he experienced, rise again, and then actually ascend into heaven. When he's thinking about where he starts, where does he go? He's meditating on Genesis 1.1. And in John chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word. Oh. Oh. Exactly. Every Hebrew reader would have knew exactly what John was doing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay. All right? <laughs> Just want to be the best. Uh, you are, Charlie. You are. And so who is this Word? In Greek, this is the logos, the very infrastructure, the logic of the universe. Who is this? You get to John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The God who's before time, who's over time, who created time, steps into time. He takes on flesh and he walks among us and we get a picture of who God is in a way that we could have never imagined outside of it. And we see God's love to the nth degree. How does this become so explicit in John chapter 3 verse 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. The God who has life within himself, who breathes life into everything that does exist, comes offering that same life that now is eternal, that knows no end, all because of his love. The God who needs nothing from us to be fully complete and beautiful and loving and whole and who he is. A triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all that he is. And yet he creates out of love. And even after history's worst, after your worst, after my worst, because of his love for us, he enters into this world a creature, the uncreated. He lives, he dies, and then he rises again for you and I. And he ascends, and what does he say? I'm going to bring this world to where it was intended to be all the way at the beginning. And when you get to Revelation 21, finally, 
the world as it was intended comes back to its ultimate glory. And what is it? With God at the center, us walking with him and him showering his love on his own. Not chaos to chaos, but love through love for love. A different world, a different story, all because in the beginning, God. God. <laughs> everything begins with God. Everything. And if that's true, it changes everything. And here's a challenge for us as we're reading through this book of Genesis together this year. As, you, as we're reading through, I, I want to give us a challenge for each and every one of us to let God reframe your everything. Let God reframe your everything. No DIY faith here, okay? If you want anything of God's meaning, if you want anything of his love, you must give him everything. And it starts with your Monday world. So when you think about your work, when you think about your rest, when you think about your relationships, your sexuality, your money, the framework and how you engage community, what is God's hope for love and how does he define love within a community? When it comes to all of that, let God reframe your everything. I think most of us in here believe, and this is the reason why you're here, most of us in here believe that God exists. But we can so easily live as practical atheists as if God's existence really doesn't take shape in anything or nearly everything that we do when it comes to Monday. One way to change that, just as a good habit and a good pathway, and this is going to get real practical, if you pick up the March monthly update, we're going to be reading through Genesis together as a church across five campuses. And we have a thing called Open Here. Some of you are familiar. Some of you, this is new. But right there in the March monthly update, we're going to start reading Genesis tomorrow, March 4th, Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to be reading through the whole book of Genesis together. You can also go online and you can subscribe to Open Here. And you can get like an audio file if you want to listen to it while you're driving to work. But as you're reading through, undoubtedly, you're going to come across a passage in Genesis where you're going to think one of three things. That's outlandish. That feels fairy tale-ish. Or it just rubs you the wrong way because it doesn't match a 21st century modern framework of existence, reality, relationships, and so on. Stop right there. That's the old in the beginning me stepping in where you take the authority as if Scripture should revolve around you and the God who created the universe should somehow fit your schema of reality. Stop. And let God reframe your everything. Don't make him try to fit into the picture that you're making. Try so desperately to submit to him and say, you're going to reframe that for me. Because if you're the Elohim that did only what you can do and you're over all of this and you love me to the nth degree and you don't need anything from me but you're just seeking to my good and you're doing this driven by love, then reframe that for me. Help me to see as you see. Can we try that together? I know it's going to be hard sometimes. I've read Genesis a lot. It can, it's going to be real hard sometimes. But just imagine... Imagine how much bigger our world actually is that we so often don't see. How much better our God actually is that we rarely are willing to admit. Let Genesis be your guide. God wants us to show, or God wants to show us the world we actually fit in. And it's gonna, I think it's going to feel like taking off virtual reality goggles that you were born with. 
You thought that was the world and then you take it off and everything feels more real, looks richer and better than anything we can try to create on our own. Let's let him do that, will we? Let's pray. God, I love Genesis. <laughs> and also I'm deeply challenged how often I fit within an exclusively naturalistic world where I just cut off anything beyond anything I can taste, touch, and see, and smell. But God, you're bigger than that. You created all of that. Help us as a church, help me, help each person here to surrender to you that you would reframe everything. That we would take on your perspective that we would trust your word, the very word that spoke this world into existence to now speak a better world into our lives. Help us to trust you, to trust your word, and to do so thoughtfully as we dig in and explore. We love you, God. Thanks for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.